Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. And we started with a community approach, very much like Ondex, where we found like the top founders that we knew across all of Latin America, and we brought them together and we started connecting them to each other and to the best advice that we could find. So I spent most of my career in quote unquote Silicon Valley, if we consider it to be in the cloud, because Duolingo is in Pittsburgh, for example, um, and Tumblr is in New York, but making connections with incredible operators and founders and being able to, to make that connection, to bring that advice down was a, a, an amazing opportunity. But then we also had like two things bo- were born out of that. First, we were seeing really early deal flow, like incredible founders, people who had worked at top tech companies in LATAM or the US and were now building and we knew had like so much potential and we could invest before anyone else got in. So we started writing really, really early checks. And the other thing that happened is we had an incredible group of people who told us all about their problems and we were able to diagnose problems that were common among a lot of the founders that we had experienced in different ways. Joining me in the deep end today is Gina Gotilf. Gina is the co-founder and CEO of Latitude, a platform helping build the next generation of iconic tech startups in Latin America through products, a dedicated fellowship, and a fund. Gina met her co-founder, Brian Reckhart, through OnDeck. Before Latitude, Gina was the VP of Marketing and Growth at Duolingo, helping scale the company from three to 200 million users, and also worked on the Mike Bloomberg presidential campaign. Continuing with our series on the meta problem of helping people start companies, we talk with Gina about the bottlenecks preventing founders from starting companies outside of the United States. Gina Gotilf, welcome to The Deep End. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here, Marshall. Yeah, it's great to chat with you. So let's just start by getting into your background, which matters a lot in the context of this podcast and the broader work you're doing of Latitude. Like, What got you into startups and obviously building in the Latin American ecosystem? Yes, of course. So look, I'm Brazilian, uh, little known fact, born and raised. Uh, I was there since, until I was 18 and I've been sort of back and forth throughout my career. Um, I got into tech I'm not going to say by accident because that's something, but it's kind of by accident. Like basically my career wasn't working out. I studied philosophy and neuroscience um, and then co-authored this neuroscience study where realized I didn't really want to be um, like in a closed environment, sort of doing MATLAB stuff with my life. Um, ended up working in digital media marketing with fashion and luxury brand, like luxury fashion and beauty brands. And then Long story short, things really changed for me when Tumblr hired me. And I had met someone from Tumblr. They were looking to figure out how to launch and grow in Brazil. And I ended up being the person who did that for them and then helped them grow in Chile and Argentina as well. Um, And that's when I realized, oh, like there's these startups and these like companies in the U.S. are trying to get into LATAM and they have no idea how to start because they think that like everyone speaks one language and they don't know anyone, you know, and actually in Latin America it matters. So I thought, ah, I'm in a really good position potentially to, to make that bridge. And so I started a little company that did that. And I helped a number of, of startups and larger tech companies in the U.S. figure out how to expand into Latam. Um, and so that's kind of how I started with startups. And one of my early clients was Duolingo. Um, and because I've always been very passionate about figuring out how to take all the privilege that I've had 
as a Brazilian who got to study English really early on and come to the U.S. and work with some of the best companies, um, I thought that helping people gain access to English language education at scale, because that allows them to double or triple their income potential, would be one of the highest, uh, like, the, the I don't know, biggest levers I had in terms of helping make a real impact in the lives of people across Latin America and other emerging markets. So that was already definitely the case for me back then. Um, and so I did, I spent the next, you know, five years working at Duolingo. I would growth and help them grow from three to 200 million users. And that was global. Um, so some LATAM work being done there too with government in Colombia and Mexico to get Duolingo into public schools and other parts of the world as well. Um, that Yeah, so that's a little bit of my background in terms of why I got into startups um, and why Latin America, it's an opportunity in terms of space to build um, really resilient people because we have to deal with a lot of tough situations uh, in developing markets and that makes for really good entrepreneurship. And believing that entrepreneurship is the biggest lever I can think of in terms of impacting the lives of hundreds of millions of people by building solutions that are accessible. Um, and that's possible today because of tech. And before we get into the LATAM ecosystem, let's talk a little bit about your current startup. Like, Tell us about uh, Latitude. Yes. So actually, I met my co-founder at OnDeck. I'm a huge OnDeck fan. So it was the beginning of the pandemic. I had actually gotten into ODF3, but had to because I was invited to join the Mike Bloomberg presidential campaign, and that seemed like a great opportunity and one that uh, I felt very passionate about. So I ended up joining ODF4, which was the first online, I think, version of OnDeck which is, the whole thing is funny because otherwise I wouldn't have met Brian. It's all felt very engineered serendipity, which is something that I remember on deck talks about. Um, I don't know if still. And I was driving across the country. Brian lived in California. And honestly, I had no idea who he was. And he reached out to me like many people do on Slack and on deck, like, hey, like we'd love to, you know, chat. And there were so many people reaching out and so many interesting professionals that I, you know, just kind of was taking them as they came. And I was also busy driving across the country. I had some clients, was doing some stuff. And I kind of pushed Brian off by a month. So I was just like, yeah, yeah, I'm busy. You know, I'll talk to you later. Now I realize, ridiculous, because Brian Reckworth is, is kind of a major deal in Latin America. He actually just became a, a Shark Tank shark in Mexico, as it announced yesterday. Oh, cool. But Congrats. He's a, thanks. So he's a big deal in Latin America. He he built this incredible startup. It was basically like a Zillow, but for Colombia that then became for Brazil. And it sold for $600 million just that year. He had just sold it. And then he joined on deck and was kind of trying to figure out what to do with his life. And he wrote this book. And Linda Rottenberg, who is the founder of Endeavor, which is an organization I really look up to and I'm a mentor of, she wrote his the for, forward to his book, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this person is incredible. He speaks fluent Portuguese, even though he's a gringo from like California. And we really saw eye to eye when we talked in terms of the potential that we saw in founders that we were talking to, in my case, mostly in Brazil and his across Latin America, and, and, and just the kinds of issues that they were facing, not just because Latin America is complicated and their bureaucracies and, and all that, but because there's just not that much access to the best resources, the best professional advice. Because even if you talk to the best founders in Brazil, for example, that's amazing. But startups in Brazil are behind startups in Silicon Valley, just in terms of time even. So there's amazing examples that can be brought from different parts of the world. And because of COVID and because we were all online, it was this amazing opportunity to bring all of that together. In addition, 
Latin America is perceived as a region mostly by Americans. But when you are in Latin America, and especially in Brazil, you don't feel like you're part of a region. You feel like you're a country and there's all these other countries around you and some of them speak the same language. But there was a real opportunity to connect Latin American markets to each other. And I had experienced that in early in my career. As I mentioned, I was helping these U.S. companies figure out how to expand into LATAM. And they had a lot of trouble. And then me, in the meantime, a lot of Latin American-based companies were trying to expand into Silicon Valley or the U.S., which is a completely different market. And, you know, 3% of Brazil speaks English. So it's just so much harder in terms of the competition and in terms of, you know, the conditions. But it makes a lot more sense if you expand within the region because conditions are very similar and it's very connection-based and we're able to unlock those doors for people that could be really magical. Anyway, so... Brian had been working with Yuri Danyushenko, who's our third co-founder, he's our technical co-founder. And we decided that we wanted to understand why the startup ecosystem in Latin America, especially in Brazil, had been like super up and coming twice in the past years and then crashed. And now that it felt like it might be up and coming again, how do we- When when were those two, when were those two previous periods? 2000 and 2000 and I'm going to say 11, 12, and then again, like 15. And then for a number of different reasons and like in financial economical shifts, like just basically like everyone went, wanted to invest in Latin America and then suddenly no one wanted to invest in Latin America again. That's so fast. I, I just want to spend a second there because that's, I, didn't, I had no idea because I thought that 2012, 2015, like those would be dates that be tied to maybe the US like macroeconomic cycle, but it doesn't seem to be true. Like what was, what was happening? It's all related. Yeah. Basically there was just a lot of interest and then there wasn't. And some of it is, for example, the political, politically related. So much like Mm -hmm. in the US, we have in Brazil and in other Latin American markets, I speak mostly of Brazil because it's the one I know the most about having been born and raised, but we have very antithetical governing figures, let's say. There's like the blue and the red. It's just a little bit different, but like, you know, Democrats and Republicans, um, we can put it mildly that way. And it's a big swing in in terms of the pendulum. And then whenever one of the sides wins, it's like everyone who's like, I'm a business, like very much like Trump. I'm business minded. I think about like, you know, the practical, I don't care about like gay rights. And I don't think, I, I don't care about the Amazon. I care about like business, whatever. The other side is like, oh my gosh, it's communism. Every, you know, but it's not. Co- so anyways, that that perception is really wild and it impacts not only the the Brazilian and and other Latin American markets in terms of their economies, but it has a huge impact also from an international like macroeconomic perspective too, because people get really scared in terms of investing in those regions and just like think that like, you know, their money's going to disappear. And then of course there's like other stuff, like there have been dictatorships in Latin America. And in some of these cases, like money has actually been tied up in the bank forever. And then the economies have completely collapsed. We've like changed currencies a bunch of times. So there's reason to be afraid and, and you know, perception as we has expe- especially seen this week with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, perception and storytelling are super important in terms of how people react to certain situations and, and then what that actually leads to. So somewhat ignorant, I would say, perspective, but just to kind of outline what was going on. But we are in a, in a, in a time again when there's excitement. This was pre-New Bank IPO, and I can explain what New Bank is in case some of the audience here isn't familiar because it's Latin American. So 2020 is when we're doing the on-deck thing, we're talking about this and we feel this fervor and this excitement and this amazing opportunity for tech startups to really take off. But we already know that there are going to be things that get like impediments and uh, roadblocks of all sizes because it's hard being a startup and succeeding. We all know that at on-deck, but then it's especially hard to do that in developing countries and especially with such political and economical instability. 
So we were like, what can we do to make it different this time? And that's sort of what Latitude came out of. And we started with a community approach, very much like Ondex, where we found like the top founders that we knew across all of Latin America. And we brought them together and we started connecting them to each other and to the best advice that we could find. So I spent most of my career in quote unquote Silicon Valley, if we consider it to be in the cloud, because Duolingo is in Pittsburgh, for example, um, and Tumblr is in New York, but making connections with incredible operators and founders and being able to, to make that connection, to bring that advice down was a, a, an amazing opportunity. Two things bo were born out of that. First, we were seeing really early deal flow, like incredible founders, people who had worked at top tech companies in LATAM or the US and were now building and we knew had like so much potential and we could invest before anyone else got in. So we started writing really, really early checks. We raised a rolling fund. We've now invested in a hundred or so startups in the past two years. And the other thing that happened is we had an incredible group of people who told us all about their problems and we were able to diagnose problems that were common among a lot of the founders that we had experienced in different ways. So for example, Brian lost $100 million with the sale of his last company because he incorporated it wrong. Like he didn't really mm -hmm. understand like the, he was told to do a thing with Delaware and like to create like a, a C-Core to own the Brazilian LLC. Like there's, I can go into detail about that, but like incorporation is not maybe something that you think about as a founder, but especially not as a US founder. But in Latin America, because there's so much instability and there's fear of investing like in a Brazil company, because everything I just said, but let's say also there are things like there are laws that protect employees so much that if like you have a company and then an employee like sues you, you're, you're probably going to lose. And then if you lose, mm -hmm. your investor is probably going to lose everything too. Like it's just, it's really built that way. So if I'm an investor in the US or in a top VC like Kazek, even if it's LATAM focused, I'm going to be like, I'm not going to invest in that corp, like that Brazilian company that seems risky. But if you have a Delaware company that owns the Brazilian company, I feel safer because this is now U.S. law that we're talking about. And I'll I, maybe I'll make you I'll give you some money. And so that's something that is required by a lot of investors. And then there's the next step, which is the Cayman, because if you have your company in the U.S., you might have to pay U.S. taxes at the sale of your company, even if you didn't have employees or business here. And I say here because I'm in Miami right now and I'm an American citizen. Okay. Finally, congrats. But basically. Thank you. Um, and so th that's one problem that people don't think about. Super non-sexy, but a lot of people having trouble like finding the right lawyers, spending a ton of money, spending a ton of time. And it's not the kind of thing you want to do with a, as a startup founder. You want to focus on your business, which is already tough enough and solving the problem that you set out to solve. So we built something called Latitude Go, which solves for that. And then after that, we realized, okay, but what if people are able to raise money? How do they get that money? So at Latitude, we had trouble with that too. We had to figure out how to get money. We raised $13 million led by Andreessen Horowitz and effects Endeavor and 150 top founders and operators in Latin America. How do we get that money from the Cayman entity to the Delaware so that we can pay for Slack or for Zoom? And then how do we get it to Brazil so we can pay our employees in Brazil? And it's actually complicated and tough and expensive. <laughs> you, you are illustrating how complicated. <laughs> You're saying it's actually complicated and my head's just sort of spinning. I'm like, no, trust me, it's very complicated. Yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't mean to, you know, I know it's it's not necessarily great to monologue on a podcast, but I just wanted to give you an outline of sort of like these very non-sexy but baseline problems that are suffered by startups in general, but especially in a place like Latin America. And being able to solve for that allows startups to be safe and know that they're doing the right thing from day one, not have to deal with all that bureaucracy and then actually just go do the hard thing, which is to build a company from scratch. And so that's what Latitude is. We solve for all of those things. 
how do you solve for all of those things? <laughs> Given how that, no, and you're not, you're not monologuing. It's the format here. Like people are here to hear from you. You just described an incredibly complicated cross-national, cross-regional set of dynamics that address everything from taxes to bank accounts to employee liability. How do you solve for that? Well, look, we can't solve for all of the problems, but we, we, we have a couple of different pieces that make the latitude flywheel spin, which is also exciting because we build different pieces that sort of like lead into each other. And it's a unique mm. business compared to, for example, Duolingo, where we built, we focus only on offering language education. That was it. At Latitude, we sort of built a piece of the ecosystem. So we have a fellowship, much like the OnDeck fellowship. So it's a program, there's admissions process, et cetera. And if you're a top founder across the whole region in Latin America, or if you are in Turkey, China, Spain, the US, we have people from all over this cohort, we have some crazy countries building for Latin America, then you can get in. It's a six-week program and you become part of our community. We have 1,500 people in the community, including angels, including angels, because then we launched an angel fellowship as well to bring mm -hmm. more capital and to help some of the people who are benefiting from having helped build some of the top startups today invest in the ecosystem in terms of their knowledge and in terms of their capital. So that's one piece of the thing, and it's over there. Then in terms of helping startups find money, that's one of their biggest pain points. There is the, the piece where we actually help with the knowledge and, and the, you know, there's a week focus on that in the fellowship. How do you think strategically about fundraising? We connect you with top funds, uh, not, you know, like white glove, but you get to see some of the, the top VCs actually come and lead sessions about what they expect so that you become more familiar with that. But then we also started a fund. We're actually raising our second fund now. It's going to be a $30 million fund. And we invest. We invest in about, I would say, give or take, it's been like something like a little bit sub 10% of our community. Maybe, maybe it's less now. So a small fraction of our community actually gets checks from Latitude. But then the biggest piece of what we're building, and it's the piece that we've talked about the least, is the tech platform that solves problems at scale. Because that's why startups are cool. They are tech platforms that solve problems at scale and don't require that like in-person approach to everything. And that's why we raised $13 million. So the incorporation piece, we launched something called Latitude Go. If anyone here is interested, you can go to go.latitude.com and Basically, what we've done is we automated the whole process of figuring out your incorporation. And we work with top law firms in Brazil because it's available for Brazil right now. It will be available for Mexico and Colombia soon and then beyond, hopefully. We work with a, a top law firm in Brazil called Pinheiro Neto. We work with a top law firm in Silicon Valley that works on this kind of stuff for our startups called Gunderson Detmer. And then we, have, we also have a partner in Cayman Islands. And then we built, we put together an incredible team and they've automated the whole thing from like figuring out exactly what you need to like taking all of the information from your documents and like spitting out the, the documents that you're going to need for incorporation and getting them to the right place. So that's one part. And then actually made the experience, as I would say, somewhat enjoyable. Like Lucio, who's the guy who's running our customer service, like I've seen emails exchange. He's hilarious. And he just like in his emails will like, recommend Netflix shows to our customers. And I'm like, what are you like, what? The like company corporation <laughs> stuff, but like nothing should be so dry. And you know, you don't, you shouldn't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars here because you are an early stage startup. You probably don't have that money. In terms of the, the banking stuff, we're not building a bank, but we are building a fintech and we announced it is not a good week to say that you're building a bank. I know, <laughs> so, I know, but Marshall, it's also an amazing week. Because 
Well, so we're not building a bank and I have to say that for like compliance reasons, um, but we are building financial services um, that have a lot to do sometimes with banking, I think is one way I would put it. And it is an amazing time, even though it is tough because I think, you know, banks have lost a ton of credibility and everyone's like, tech has lost a ton of credibility, arguably over the past few months. So we were already building this, right? Because as I mentioned, it's really tough to figure out how to manage your money once you get it. Like just like really from like, and, and like Silicon Valley Bank is an amazing bank. Uh, I think my co-founder is one of the first ever clients of theirs. I have friends who work or worked at, at, at SVB. It's like, they're amazing and they're a landmark for the ecosystem. But they were kind of a monopoly because there was no one else offering the services that they offered. And in the sense that like for like Latin America, like I said, in many cases, you're going to need an offshore company to operate. And in many of those cases, you'll need a Cayman entity. Mercury, until today, um, and this may change soon, but Mercury, which is normally another bank that, that founders use, don't offer this Cayman capability. So there's a number of things that Silicon Valley was doing and no one else was doing. But the experience we found was suboptimal. We, we thought the product was not that great even though it's an amazing institution and an amazing company with great people providing amazing services, the product really frustrated us because we were users. So for example, I am the COO of this company and I could not for the life of me access our balance ever. Like, and we talked to people at Silicon Valley Bank and like my co-founder and, and CEO, Brian, would try to give me and, my, and our other co-founder access a million times and it just wouldn't show. And I'm here just trying to figure out how much money we have so that I could pay people. And mm -hmm. like, I couldn't. So there's just like stuff like that. It's also complicated to open an account. At the time, we also then tried to open an account. Mercury, we actually have an account in Mercury now for our C-Core and we got rejected. So there's just like stuff about like the whole banking experience that's suboptimal and can use work. And there is an opportunity to help make things a lot easier. So we started building Meridian, which until Wednesday was like a secret. And it was Meridian was supposed to be our code name within the company. We didn't even have time to come up with something else. And we decided this was it's good a good enough. name. Yeah. <laughs> it fits it's like a good name. <laughs> the Latitude theme, you know, like that. And we talk a lot about like nautical imagery at Latitude and the experience of like building and sailing and the journey of entrepreneurship, whatever. And we started building that. We hired an incredible team. So we have some early employees from some of the top fintechs um, you may or may not have heard about from Latin America. So for example, Nubank is one of them. Nubank is an incredible case because they IPO'd at like $35 billion just after we launched, Lat like six months after we launched Latitude. So suddenly the whole world was like, oh, like there's real money in Latin America. It's not just like this little thing over there. You know, it's like actually there's like huge gaps and and products to be built and solutions to be built and and they're major. So we hired employee number seven of this of uh, of this company, New Bank, and Creditas, which is another one. And then we have someone amazing from Twilio, Patrick Colin Cherry, who joined us as well. So we assembled an incredible team to build an alternative solution. And we when we're we're working on it, we're chipping away. We have you know an MVP, we have an interface, like we can already offer certain services, which we were starting to test on Latitude Go customers, because we've already incorporated a lot of companies. A lot of them need help with the finance piece. We already have all of their documents there, so they don't have to go and like do onboarding again and like whatever. They We already have everything. They already trust us. We can now take care of the next piece for them. But then this whole thing happened starting Thursday, where we're first at like, oh my God, like, what do we do? Because we have $5 million in Silicon Valley Bank and like figuring mm -hmm. that out. Then over the weekend, it was like, Still trying to figure that out while trying to help all of our startups because most of them were impacted in some way by this. And like 
it's easy to be there when things are easy. It's hard to be there when things are hard to like for our portfolio companies, for our Latitude Go customers and for our entire community, like how can we be of help? Like really practically speaking. So we're doing all this stuff. And then on Monday, we were like, well, where are people going to bank? And you know what? We're building this, but we were only going to really announce it later this year. We were going to like do like a big, we have a, we started a big event series called Vamos Latam Summit. Vamos Latam is like our tagline. Vamos Latam Summit yeah. happens in Brazil. We did the first one last year for 1,500 people. This year we're doing it for 3,000 people. So we were going to announce it in September. We might've done a pre-announcement like late April, but then Monday we were like, I think we, we're just going to come out of the bag. We're going to talk about how we're building this because people are thinking about what are they going to do and how are they going to handle issues in terms of receiving and managing money as a startup with an offshore structure. So we did. So we launched Meridian on Wednesday. You can find it at meridian.latitude.com. And we're going to start onboarding our first beta customers over the next month. And that in itself is also uh, you know, a huge undertaking in terms of how it works, the compliance piece, and and all of that. Here's what I'm trying to understand. Not that it's unclear, but I'm curious how you would articulate the like Latin American opportunity. Is the opportunity mm. that there are emergent behaviors, interests, and issues that folks should either invest in or build companies around? Or is it also, because these don't have to be mutually exclusive, that there's an opportunity to take, let's say, versions of companies and technology that exists in like Europe and the United States and Asia um, and import them to Latin America? How would you articulate how folks should think about it? That's a great question, Marshall. And it's one that I think I like take for granted and just like, you know, but what, what I mean by Latin America is a great opportunity is that if you look at every sector of society, like every single vertical, there is so much to evolve. Like there's just so much space like for quote unquote disruption. Like there is, everything is so behind. And like, I don't like using the word behind because I don't know if it's politically correct, but honestly, like there are so many people who are in banks who don't have access to health services, who don't have access to education, who don't like all everything. The mom and pop stores that are all over Latin America, like don't have a way to like actually input their merchandise into their systems in a way that isn't like pen and paper, you know, or like communicate if they decide to open another one, like communicate like with the other store, like everything is super behind in terms of adopting tech solutions that can help cater to them and, and actually, you know, allow people to have access to things like a chance for their business to survive or, you know, competing with others or education, in the case of like Duolingo, everything. I like to say that it, it, it kind of feels with Latin America and tech that you're like at least 10 years behind like Silicon Valley. It's not one-to-one -one and it's not fair to say one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm sure you can contest this in a lot of ways. There are cultural and historical differences for all countries. Like you, you can't compare it like that, but loosely speaking, that's the case. And so when we're, there's amazing opportunities for building anywhere in the world, especially in, in Silicon Valley. The, the improvements that we're seeing now, maybe not with ChatGPT, we'll leave that aside for now, but the improvements we're seeing with like most things, it's like incremental, you know, like we've seen like these mm -hmm. big uptakes and like access to things and technologies that have transformed industries. And now we're making incremental changes in Latin America and other developing markets, which is most of the world. We haven't seen that yet. We're still at this inflection point where there's a ton of room to grow. And if you look at, for example, like the number, like dollars um, in by country, like in terms of GDP, 
coming from tech companies versus like blue chip companies, like old school companies, the ratio in, in developed countries like the US to like developing markets like Brazil is completely crazy. So they're really like all indications point to there's a lot of room for that 10x to happen. And we are at the beginning of that 10x. And we are at a mo- an amazing moment now because digital adoption is ubiquitous. So there's there's access to the internet and to technology. So that allows everyone to, you know, actually use these things. And we have had our first batch of successful tech startups coming out of Latin America and a lot of professionals who have gone abroad, worked at top tech companies and are now coming back to build where they came from. So we have the talent and we have the mindset and we have the problems and we have the capital in terms of like people being interested in investing and like investments in Latin America increased like crazy in 2020, We're seeing an adjustment now because of everything that's going on, but still it's on the rise. And so if you are looking to make a difference in the world, if you're looking to make money, if you're looking to make an impact, building for Latin America now is really exciting and in the whole latitude premise. So of course, this is what I believe I wouldn't be doing this is that the next 10 years are going to be super exciting. Million questions still for this uh, last part of the podcast, but I'll try to get to a couple of them. So number one would be you alluded to this, like the fact that like you can't treat everything from Mexico to like Uruguay as the same. Like you, you have to be reductionist of Latin America, but also like you can't be too reductionist. Yes. Aside from the fact that Brazil is like Portuguese speaking and Argentina is you know Spanish speaking, like what are the differences that you articulate? Aside from that rather obvious one. Yes. No, that's a good question, and I'll also add something to the beginning of that, which I think is interesting which is that at Duolingo, I helped lead a lot of our international expansion. And one thing we heard from every single country we went to was, here, things are different, and Duolingo is not going to work as is. And here's how you need to adapt Duolingo to China, to Japan, to Turkey, to whatever. In the case of China and India, probably true. But in the case of everywhere else, everyone thought that their countries was different. Not only the, the language, but also like here, we, you know, green is perceived as a color that represents this, or people don't like to learn this way. And when what we saw is that actually treating the whole world like it was vanilla and the same was one of the best growth levers we had at Duolingo because humans are a lot more similar than we like to think. We like to think we're special. So I'll start with that, which is, a, I think, a controversial well, quick, point quick of pause, view. Because yeah. that's, I mean this seriously, this is the hundredth episode we've done. Like that's one of the most like counterintuitively interesting things a guest has ever told me. <laughs> right. I thought you were going a totally different direction with that, like when you started. But can you actually now you just set this up, like, you know, China and India being different. Is that like a size thing? Is it just like like how look, by the time I left Duolingo, I can't say that we had cracked China and India. I think that they've done an incredible job in 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 in, in recent years. There's a couple of things that are really special about those two countries. First, in China, there is no Google. So that means there is like no like Google app store for Android. So that means there's like a hundred different Android stores. That like let's start there. So you're not just dealing with Apple and Google, you're leading with like a bunch of different store stores that operate in a bunch of different ways. Like that's first. Then there's like Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent basically own everything. And they all sort of, you know, op- have they have world within them. And mm-hmm. that you need to figure out like how to fit into that world or compete with that world. And then there's also like crazy political things. Like when we launched Duolingo there, we got a million downloads in one day. 
And then the government blocked us because they were like, oh, educational app. I don't know if we had some like keywords that were like non-kosher there. Mm-hmm. And the government blocked us and there's no recourse. There's no one you can talk to. And so just we, we you know, we struggled with our normal approach to China and, and how people were learning there. But I would still think that like in terms of the education and the way that you learn a language, it's still the same. And then with India, there's like nuances too. Like we found out that people, even though they didn't speak English, they would set their UI, their phone UI to English because typing in Hindi, for example, is really complicated. So they knew enough just to navigate the phone. But that meant that when they downloaded Duolingo, we would assume that they spoke English because their phone UI was in English. And we would offer them the opportunity to learn every other language in the world except for English, because that's how we had set things up. There's that. There's also the case that there's like, I don't know how many languages in India. It's like a super fragmented country. And then the way that people actually discover new apps is very different because you don't just go to the app store and download. You go to a local store and then have someone there install apps. This is, mind you, like 2015, okay? Things might have changed significantly since then. But the point is that like everyone thought that like the right thing to do was to treat each country individually. And of course, we were were doing that in terms of language, but in terms of the user experience and the design and everything about the app, we maintained it the same, which allowed us to do a ton of A-B testing across the board and then release updates to all of our users without adding complexity and code debt like in mass for every single thing that we did. But then shifting back to Latin America, I would say that mainly like two big buckets. The first one is more like the legislative one. For example, in fintech is like the hottest area in, in Latin America right now. Like everyone wants to invest in fintech. That's where a lot of the money is. But, you know, make it like more regulated area. So fintech, maybe like health and, and whatnot. Rules, laws in each country are very different and you have to navigate them differently. And you probably need to bribe different people to get things <laughs> done. I'm, I'm half joking. Well, we haven't bribed anyone so far. But, <laughs> you know, you can't just you can't just can't launch like a a fintech from Brazil as it is in in Mexico, or like in our case, we're doing legal tech. Latitude Go allows you, like helps you with like the legal side of things. You can't just go and plop that there, not just because the laws are different, regulations, et cetera, but because for that, you need a local partner. And that's very different, right? Because laws are different. So we have a local partner in Brazil. We need to find that partner in Mexico and then understand exactly what the nuances are of of building that on top of that. So there's that kind of thing that I think just changes from country to country. And you have to understand when you're going into a new market, regardless of whether they speak the same country or not. And then the second, I think, is access to people and connections. So mm-hmm. everywhere in the world, I, in my very you know limited life experience, most things depend on your relationships. Mm-hmm. And human beings, like that's how we do things. We, we meet someone and they have a thing, an idea, an opportunity, da, 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 and those things like, I have never gotten a job that I applied to. I have only gotten jobs because someone told me about a job that was available. You need to know people. And in Latin America, that is especially true. We are very warm, chatty, connections-based people, I think, compared to other parts of the world, which may be maybe a little bit more pragmatic in the way that they handle things or handle business. Uh, we're also a lot more indirect. You know, like in the U.S., it's normal to tell someone like, I don't think that this is great. This is what you need to do. In Brazil, you would be like, I love it. There's like a little thing here, but like mostly you're great. Like, so there's that kind of way of interacting with the world and with each other and with life. You need to build connections with people who then introduce you to other people. You need to build, build trust. And so being able to access those across borders is really valuable because if I'm a Brazilian startup and I want to launch in Mexico, but I don't know anyone, it's going to take me forever to figure out how to 
how to do things, how to how to get into things, how to be invited to things, how to get access. And by and that's one of one of the reasons we built Attitude the way that we did, so that like top minds can meet each other and start connecting from day one, and they can make it super easy to access those connections and resources across borders. So I've got two last big questions. So question number one, I'm going to go back a few questions to your answer around the quote unquote is LATAM behind? Because like to your point, like it's kind of complicated, but the thing that's really interesting about this type of story is like this brings us to the China question in the sense that largely speaking, like China skipped the desktop computing aspect of like the early internet, which on the one hand makes you say, if you're looking at the world of 2003, you're behind, desktops haven't mm-hmm. penetrated, laptops yes. aren't there, body, 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 blah. But what that actually meant though, is that they were ahead because they kind of skipped to the mobile internet. I'm curious, given that historical metaphor, how you think about opportunities in Latin America. So if it's the year 2013, 2014, 2015, while we're in 2023, and I mean, we, I mean the royal we, is there an opportunity to kind of skip a step to go somewhere helpful? Like maybe you skip like a weird internet of things discourse that didn't turn into anything. (laughs) Um, No offense to internet of things people, but I'm really thinking back to 2015. (laughs) I'm thinking, because like to your point, like, you know, you're coming from Michael Bloomberg world. I was coming from DC. I'm thinking of all my like DC tech cliches and IOT is definitely one of those. So like, what do you think about this idea in that context? Oh, I love that Marshall. It's such a good provocative question. And I, and I, I'm really interested in that because I think there, there's a couple of things that are relevant here. First, um, you're right. You know, like China, India too, I think they skipped, they skipped, um, laptop. And I also remember everyone being like, wow, China has these like cluster apps. They're so weird. And like the user experience is terrible because all of their websites are so like crowded with things. They don't know design. You know, like there's just like this perception that what we're doing is right. What the other one is doing is wrong. But now we're trying to catch up. Uh, and, and I don't know that we will, to be honest. But when it comes to, to Brazil, Latam, and developing markets, one thing that really excites me is that, like I said before, most of the world is developing markets. Most of the world are people who don't have access to what we have access to in Silicon Valley. Like that, you know, I'm not the first person or the last person to say that. But what does that mean? If I'm in Silicon Valley, I don't understand what it's like to actually not have access to Wi-Fi or have really spotty Wi-Fi or to have a data plan that's too expensive for me or to not have access to an iPhone and like have to use a super old school, you know, Android or, you know, a few years ago, like a flip phone or whatever. You don't understand what it's like to not have Venmo that you can just like pay your friend. Like there's, there are things that we take for granted here in terms of so many things that makes it for a relatively cushy life, which is why I immigrated to the United States, (laughs) but also means that a lot of the things that we build and that we have access to are built for that world, which is great. But most of the world does not experience that reality. And we actually experience different reality. And poverty and lack of access to things looks a lot, looks very similar across markets. Of course, you know, there's a lot of differences, but there's a lot more of the world that experiences this side of things than that side of things. And so in terms of like the TAM and the opportunity to build something that then becomes really relevant for a market you wouldn't have considered because the conditions were similar becomes really exciting. So look at, for example, Southeast Asia or many other parts of the world that just aren't as I don't know if the word is rich, but who don't have access to as many things. So that's one thing that I'm really excited about. I think, you know, we are building solutions, thinking of those populations and those populations are the majority of the world's population. And I think that we are also building 
solutions that will then become better for everyone. So for example, take WhatsApp. Like, I don't know if you've ever used WhatsApp, but I think WhatsApp is objectively better than iMessage. And everyone with an iPhone uses iMessage because it's cute because it makes little noise and like whatever. But like (laughs) if you're abroad, you don't use iMessage. It's too expensive and you probably don't have friends with iPhones. You use WhatsApp. WhatsApp has developed features and ways of operating and ways of enabling like long distance calls that are far superior to what's going on with iMessage. iMessage people will never even know because they're just not there. So that's one piece. The other piece I think that like is very related to what you said. So when you take... Uh, fintech, for example, talk about open banking and um, the fact that Brazil, I think, just surpassed the UK in terms of like the most advanced open banking solutions in the world, something like that. I read something like that. You'll have to find an actual source for this. But I have a lot of negative things to say about my country, Brazil, but our central bank is actually phenomenal. And the way that they've been able to implement open banking solutions like super quickly and to roll out, to enable something called PIX, which you may not have heard of, but it's basically something that allows anyone to pay any anyone. Like it, it really has transformed. It's almost like everyone automatically has Venmo and like cash is like quickly becoming sort of, you know, like more and more obsolete. Mm-hmm. And now that there's new bank, which is banking people who are unbanked, that allows people without a credit card or debit card to actually be able to do things. That's so exciting because we can build on top of that. We can build on top of PIX. We can build on top of open banking. All of the other countries are like, they're like diddly-daddling on a bunch of other issues that like they deem to be more important. And we can be building on on top of this right now, which I think is going to become super relevant for the rest of the globe. But I'm unable to see the future. I I generally think that if you're able to find scrappy solutions that works for the majority of the population, that then you can build on top of that for, you know, whoever has access to more but it's a lot harder to do the opposite. I think my last question would just be, given the, this was a really broad, in a great way, conversation, what are some examples of startups, ideas, areas of focus that you think listeners who are interested in LATAM should be focused on? Mm. I don't want to be lame and say what I I think I'm going to (laughs) say, which is like, there, there is opportunity everywhere. Now, I would think non-sexy. That's how I would mm-hmm. go. Because I think that that's where a lot of the biggest opportunities are. The B2B SaaS opportunities, that's where we look to invest a lot of the times at Latitude, FinTech, health tech. Of course, there's some interesting stuff happening in ed tech. I'm an angel investor and I've started, you know, I've been talking to a number of entrepreneurs in that area as well. Look, I, all entrepreneurs are great and I don't want to like shun anyone in the community who's building for, but there are things that I personally don't think are that interesting in terms of the market size and the opportunity for like complete, like world changing enablement. Like for example, wine choosing apps or like, you know, things that are like the luxury pieces or like things that are like for the 1%. I'm not saying that there is an opportunity there. There is a ton of money and I'm sure that there's, but I'm excited about the stuff that really structurally transforms access. If you are interested in Latin America and you are not Latin American or there, I would recommend you join Latitude because then you get to meet some of the top people in tech in whatever country you choose to focus on or across the board who you can have these conversations with and understand where the opportunities are. Well said, Gina. And it's really cool genuinely to hear that uh, all this got started after you uh, ignored a really valuable uh, Slack DM uh, towards the start of towards the start. Of Don't everything. underestimate your Slack DMs on 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 deck. Uh, go Google people's names. Is what I would say. <laughs> and then also remember, and I asked the one 
be careful too. And this is what I think is exciting about tech, which is even if you can't come up with a good Google result for someone in tech, they could end up being really big next year or even a week or two from now. So that's the complicated dynamic uh, of this industry. Uh, Gina, thank you so much for joining us in the deep end. Thank you for the thoughtful questions, Marshall, and for taking an interest in Latin America. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.